Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And not not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. This is the word of the Lord. Let's uh, pray before we begin our study of God's word together. Would you join me? Lord Jesus, thank you for being faithful that when you begin a work, you see it through to completion, even until the day of your return. Jesus, we believe that your kingdom has come. We believe that your kingdom is coming. We believe that you will build your church and that the gates of hell will not stand against it. And yet, Jesus, we confess this morning that oftentimes we are discouraged when it feels like we don't see much progress. Would you give us eyes of faith to see the truth of what is happening, that the powerful kingdom is progressing in our hearts and even in the world, and that all of this is your doing. We pray this in your mighty name. Amen. My first year as a student pastor, unsurprisingly, I made a rookie mistake. I had about 87th and 8th graders assembled, ready to have an evening of Bible study and worship and prayer. And I had worked ahead of time to provide them with some Bible reading plan bookmarks. I remember they were bright orange, made of plasticky type of laminate material, and I had made sure that there was one on each chair, so when they sat down, they would each have this bookmark, and they'd be able to use it throughout the year to mark off as they studied God's Word. I, I had the best of intentions. But then, as our youth group started, it didn't take long for one of the seventh grade boys to realize that these orange, sturdy, plasticky bookmarks made pretty good projectiles. And once one salvo got fired off, it wasn't long before there was return fire. And before you know it, pandemonium had broken out. 
Now, I learned from this mistake never to give kids things on the front end of youth group, always at the end. I also learned over my years as a junior high pastor that if you have a little bit of patience, you can, in fact, see progress. Near the end of my tenure as a student pastor, I started a a pattern of having a banquet for the eighth graders on their last week with me in my ministry. And at that banquet, we would tell stories about what we'd seen the Lord do amongst them. Uh, We would even have a slideshow with pictures of them in the ministry over the last two years. And without fail, you would see the same reaction. Is that the same kid? You couldn't see it happening along the way, but they had grown like 12 inches over those two years, it felt like. And even more so, they had matured intellectually, physically, and oftentimes spiritually. It's an important principle. Sometimes it requires patience in order to see progress. That's important for you to know as a Christian, not just if you're involved with student ministry, but because the entire Christian life can be a very discouraging sort of experience when you feel as if you are not seeing any progress. You are falling into the same patterns of sin and immaturity that you said and promised the Lord you never would again. And you find yourself discouraged. Or you look around at the world outside and it feels like the world is going backward, not forward. And you find yourself wondering, where is this coming powerful kingdom of God Jesus preached about? Well, it's it's for this reason that we need Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 21. A passage where Jesus shows us the power of the kingdom of God and how to perceive the progress it's making in the world and in our hearts. This morning, I have one main idea for you and two points as we move through the text. The main idea is this. Though it's hard to perceive, the kingdom is progressing. Though it's hard to perceive, the kingdom is progressing. Two points to follow along with that. First, in verses 10 through 17, we'll see the kingdom's power rejected. Kingdom's power rejected. Then verses 18 through 21, we'll see the kingdom's progress expected. And my prayer is through this that you will gain the eyes of faith needed to see the kingdom's progress in your heart and in the world around you. Uh, We pick up in Luke chapter 13, verse 10. And since we had a Sunday where we weren't studying Luke's gospel, I will just catch you up on what's happening We're in what's called the road journey portion of Luke's gospel. Jesus had little by little been training his disciples and revealing himself to them until that moment where finally his identity was put out plainly. He was transfigured before their face on the Mount of Transfiguration. And Peter made that great confession that Jesus was the Christ of God. From that moment forward, Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem. He's a man on a mission, and he's going on a journey, and nothing's going to stop him from getting where he has to go. 
Ever since then, we've been seeing little encounters along this road trip with Jesus and his disciples, little snapshots of what it was like as they drew ever closer to the cross and the tomb and finally his resurrection from the dead. Uh, More immediately, the last passage we studied was part of a series of passages that had two themes running through them, judgment and stewardship. Uh, Everything that we have is given to us by God, our, our time, our talent, our treasure. And there's going to be a day of accountability coming sooner than we expect where the Lord Jesus himself will give the report card of how we have done with the resources he has provided us. Uh, The last passage immediately before this one was the note of judgment on how the nation of Israel had failed in their stewardship of what God had provided. They were like a fig tree that hadn't borne fruit in a long time. And God was going to give them one more season to bear fruit until they were chopped down, which meant they had to repent while there was still time. Well, our passage this morning picks right up on that theme. What will the nation do? Will God's people repent at the warning of Jesus? Or will they, compare, will they continue in their pattern of hard-heartedness? Well, in verse 10, we find Jesus coming to the most Jewish of all Jewish places you could imagine. He is in the Sabbath on, uh, in, the, in a synagogue on the Sabbath. Uh, The settings in verse 10, now while he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over, could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus shows up to church on that Saturday, he sees a pitiable sight. A dear sister, someone who had suffered from an affliction of a spiritual origin, We're told she had a demon that had caused a sort of disability. She was bent over and could not straighten herself. Uh, That bent back must have caused horrible suffering in her life. It's very difficult to deal with physical affliction, even with modern medicine and conveniences for the handicap that we have. But back then, that would have made life almost unbearable. And we're told it's not just something that happened a month ago. It had been going on for 18 years. Surely even someone with strong faith would start to lose faith, thinking, this thing isn't getting better. There's no progress being made at all. But as we've seen so often in Luke's gospel, Jesus is able to do things that no one else is able to do. And in this case, his compassion will bring healing to this woman with a bent back. We're told he calls her over in verse 12. When Jesus saw her, he called her over, brought her close, and he said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. Once again, we see Jesus using his words, the powerful words of the man who is the word of God incarnate to defeat Satan and his demons, to bring the power of the kingdom that's coming into the world right here and now. And in this case, it takes a woman with a bent back and lets her stand up straight 
for the first time in 18 years. How could you do anything except what she does? Glorify God. If you had seen that, much less experienced it for yourself. Now surely this healing has embedded within it a picture of what Jesus does when he straightens out our bent over souls, our crooked hearts that are in bondage to not just the uh, demons, but to Satan himself. Each of us that are Christians at some point has experienced the healing power of Jesus to save us from our bondage to sin. Jesus still delights to make people who are suffering whole. And he does that with his healing touch, by the preaching of the gospel, by receiving his words. Jesus is still doing that today. Um, this, uh, this week I came across a testimony from a woman uh, by name of Molly Thornton. Um, oh, sorry, Mar Molly Wharton. Um, she is an academic. Uh, she is an associate professor of history at UNC Chapel Hill. Her job, in short, is to look at religion in America she's had a bit of a focus on evangelical Christian churches like ours. And at times she has been less than charitable when writing about us. Uh, one particular piece she did on the head of the Southern Baptist Convention, um, or the head of the Southern Baptist Seminary, um, Al Moeller, where Molly admits that she was more than a little bit snarky in describing the evangelical faith as something unbecoming of refined people. Well, Molly's the sort of person, as an agnostic, who has a bit of a snooty attitude toward Christians that you think would fit right in to the rise of the nuns, people who increasingly don't care much for religion, which makes it all so surprising what happened over the last year. Uh, Molly was going to do a piece for a big newspaper on another high-profile pastor, but instead of just getting the interview material she needed, she got more than she bargained for. Because that pastor, J.D. Greer, at the end of the interview, asked Molly some questions about her own journey of faith. Those questions unsettled her, yet she was strangely intrigued. Over the course of several months, they had conversations over email and Zoom calls, and other Christians got involved. And most surprising to Molly herself, as well as to everyone that knows her, she was gloriously saved and baptized and now is publicly glorifying God for Jesus writing her bent soul. Uh, brothers and sisters, know that Jesus is still in the business of showing compassion to suffering sinners today. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian or maybe you're not sure if you are, is there something inside of you that maybe feels a little uneasy in your soul? Do you have the sense that maybe you're bent away from God instead of toward him? According to Jesus, the problem is that each of us are sinners, and he who sins is a slave to sin. But the good news is that Jesus came to set people free from the bondage of sin and the devil. He did that by giving up his own life as a sacrifice so sinners could be forgiven and freed, and made whole. What you need to do is draw near to Jesus, 
to draw near to him by turning from the things you used to trust in and instead to trust Jesus to save you. No matter where you are in your level of understanding or how many questions you may have, just know this. Jesus is beckoning you to come close. And if you'll step toward him in faith and repentance, you'll experience his healing touch as well. Well, I have to confess, when I first read this passage, I was taken with this compassionate, powerful miracle of the kingdom of God. I mean, it's only fitting. It's Pentecost Sunday, remembering that moment when the power of the kingdom of God came in the coming of the Holy Spirit. I was ready to preach a sermon about the power of Jesus to heal. And yet, as I reflected on this passage more, I became convinced that this healing is actually just the setup for the real drama of the story. And in fact, that the devil, while he is one of the enemies in the story, um, is not the most close enemy. There is someone with a crooked soul who makes himself known, the ruler of the synagogue. Pick up with me in verse 14. But the ruler of the synagogue indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. It's hard to overstate just how cold-hearted and hard-hearted this man was. He didn't really care for the suffering of this dear sister and her bent back. He didn't really care for what this miracle meant of Jesus and the kingdom of God that was being proclaimed. All he cared about was keeping his place of power, keeping the status quo. And that meant Jesus was someone to be rejected, not someone to be accepted. Uh, there is some bookending going on. It was pointed out to me in one of the books I was reading this week. Jesus' ministry started in a synagogue on a Sabbath, and he was not well received. They ran him out and tried to kill him. And here we are, and he's on his way toward Jerusalem, and his last scene in Luke in a synagogue, and God's people are still rejecting him with a hard heart. Now, uh, this was a very short-sighted move. It's not a good idea to cross swords with Jesus in the realm of the law or theology. And Jesus has no problem dunking on this spiritual midget. <laughs> then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And not, not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day. Uh, the teachers of the law in Jesus' day had built up a series of rules around God's command that you must not work on the Sabbath day but must keep it holy. They had built up rules about what you could or could not do. Those rules seem strange and petty to our ears. And yet I have to imagine many of the people who created them thought they were helping people to avoid sin. Things like how much you were allowed to carry weight-wise on the Sabbath day. 
how many steps you were allowed to go away from your house on the Sabbath day. What sorts of everyday things you could do or couldn't do. It was all spelled out in exhaustive detail. One of the details that was very important that Jesus bases his entire argument on here is that there was a carve out to show compassion to your livestock. We have a dog in our house. Um, on the weekdays where I go off and go to work at a certain time of the day or Sunday morning, I get up and I let the dog out of the house, feed the dog, give it water, showing compassion for that dog's needs. On my day off on Friday, even if I and the rest of my family want to sleep in, the dog still needs all those things to happen. The dog does not take a day off from its bodily urges, right? Well, that was the same back then. You had your ox or your lambs or your goats, whatever it was. They needed to eat. They needed water. They needed to relieve themselves. So it was explicitly taught you were not sinning, you were not breaking the Sabbath if you went and untied your animal so it could compassionately eat and drink and relieve itself. Well, Jesus takes that bit of logic and uses it to drive a stake through the heart of this cold-hearted man and everyone that agreed with him. He says, you're willing to show compassion by loosing your animal. Then he uses the exact same word, but you're mad at me for loosing a dear suffering woman from the clutches of Satan. In other words, shame on you. You're treating her worse than your animals. This reveals a shocking lack of compassion from God's people, the, the people who had received so much compassion from God. And shows us again the pattern that even if you see the powerful workings of the kingdom of God right in front of you with a hard heart, you will reject the king who does those miracles. Now, what are we to take from this passage? Uh, the end result is Jesus having been vindicated, the people glorifying God, and that synagogue ruler with egg on his face. But what relevance does it have for us as Christians today? Well, I think one of the uh, direct lessons we are to take from this is not to assume just because we see powerful workings of God around us that our hearts are open and soft to the working of the kingdom of God inside us. Uh, it's possible to be used by God powerfully in evangelism. It's power, possible to be used by God consistently in service to the church. It's possible to be a part of the church during a time of revival. And yet, if we do not ourselves gladly receive the lordship of Jesus, all of it will be for naught. It's a warning to people who grow up in church and attend church even on Memorial Day, who delight to hear testimonies of people saved and clap at baptisms and send missionaries to bring the gospel to people that never heard it. Don't assume those things can be a substitute for a heart that's open to the rule and reign of Jesus in your life. Uh, one of the ways I think you can see if you have received that rule of reign of Jesus in your life is that those who have experienced his compassion show compassion readily to others. 
I was so encouraged to see this happen over the last few months. Two of our members, um, I haven't asked their permission, but I'm going to use their names so they can forgive me later. Ron and Judith Taroni. The Lord has given them a unique ministry toward immigrants from India for some reason. It's happened twice. Someone who's from India, they're sojourning here in the United States, they walk into our church, and Ron and Judith build this wonderful relationship with them. And I've seen them, they, they see specific needs, loneliness, financial hardships, relational difficulty, and their reaction isn't to think, ooh, that's messy, I'm gonna stand over here. Now instead their impulse is to draw close and to provide the same compassion that they've received from Christ to those that Christ brings in front of them. Ron and Judith, you can forgive me after the service. Brothers and sisters, would we have that same compassion, knowing just how much we have received the healing touch of Jesus and how that calls for us to respond in like toward others. May the Lord use us in our meager efforts to bring the power of the kingdom into the lives of others. But what happens when you do that? When you gladly submit to the rule of reign in Jesus, and in Jesus' name, you go forward in faith, and like Jesus, you experience rejection. When you don't see the progress you want to see, and you find your heart growing discouraged. Well, that's where our second point is so important. The kingdom's progress expected, 18 through 21. Jesus gives two bite-sized parables to set our expectations in the right place. I think Luke put these right after Jesus being rejected in the synagogue to answer this question. How then does the power of the kingdom of God progress in this world? Back in those days, there was an expectation of the Messiah's coming being shock and awe. The Romans would be cut down and God's people would be lifted up. And all of it would happen very quickly and visibly and at the end of a sword. And with that sort of expectation, the ministry of Jesus was a great disappointment for many. Uh, Jesus, when's it gonna happen? How long are you gonna put up with people challenging you like that? How long are you gonna allow these Roman oppressors to keep stepping on our neck? When will the righteous reign of God in this kingdom you said has arrived, when will I be able to see it and touch it and feel it and live in it? Those are the sorts of questions people were asking, if not audibly, certainly in their hearts. Well, Jesus tells two parables to answer. Uh, both of them having to do with the kingdom's progress. The first, in 18 through 19, has to do uh, with the setting of your garden. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. The man who takes a seed, teeny tiny seed, the variety of mustard seed he's talking about, so small you can barely see it with the human eye. Yet that tiny seed, when placed into the ground, 
with proper application of water and sunlight and patience, it sprouts forth and grows and grows until you get a mustard plant that's 8 to 12 feet tall, big enough for birds to rest and nest in. Now, there is a connection there that uh, if you know your Old Testament well, it's obvious that Jesus is describing uh, the work of the kingdom of God expanding from something small into something big, so big that the nations of the world will find rest and refuge within it. This afternoon, you can look up uh, Ezekiel 17 and 31. This same sort of image used a couple different ways, but basics are the same. There's this big tree that God brings about, causes growth. And then it's so big that these birds come and nest and rest in it. And those birds explicitly are described as the nations of the world. Uh, Jesus in this parable then is teaching, though the kingdom of God starts off so small, it'll grow big enough to reach the world, provide a place of rest and refuge for people of all types. Second parables, 20 through 21. This one, it's coming from the example of your kitchen. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. In this parable, there's a woman, and she's preparing bread to be baked. It's a lot of bread. Uh, three measures, that'd be roughly enough for 150 people. It's a big, big batch of dough. But what does she do? She puts within it leaven. That's another word for yeast. And that yeast, though it's just a little bit of it, and you put it in one side of that lump of dough, invariably that yeast works its way through the whole lump. It permeates the whole thing. Now, we need to be careful here because often in the Bible, leaven is a symbol for sin. But that's not how Jesus is using the image in this parable. Parables have one main point that you were to take from that parable. Focus on that. In this case, what Jesus is pointing out is how the kingdom permeates its way through the world and through our hearts. It works its way through all the nooks and crannies. Surely it's invisible as it does so. But one day we'll be able to see it. That the whole thing has been covered because the kingdom of God is progressing, whether you can perceive it or not. Now, in the history of interpretation, these parables have been misused a number of ways. I think one is relevant for us at the moment we're living in specifically. Uh, there has been a, a history of using these to teach that there is coming a sort of Christian utopia. For World War I, this was popular. Uh, the idea that the gospel will advance and more and more people will become Christians. Nations themselves will become Christianized. Christendom will grow and grow and grow and make visible progress until the point where the whole earth is covered by it. And these parables, among with other texts, are used to, to teach that sort of idea. Um, but we can learn a lot from history. While this was a very popular thing for pulpits before World War I to teach, it was not very popular to teach after World War I. 
because on the battlefields of the Great War, the promise of progress died. It's a whole lot harder to be optimistic when it feels like the world is ending all around you. Now, we live in a moment where there is a resurgence of this type of idea, thinking that God's rule and reign will be seen in a visible way through Christendom in some sort. We need to be careful. We need to remember that Jesus himself said his kingdom is not of this world. That it's a spiritual kingdom. It spreads one heart to one heart, one soul to one soul. And yes, there are times where it's progress turns the world upside down. And yet there's lots of times where the progress of the kingdom of God is invisible except with eyes of faith. So what should we take this to mean this morning? I think the first place to start is with patience. Patience with the progress of the gospel in your heart and in the world. Oftentimes Christians grow discouraged because they expect to be able to see more progress in following after Jesus than they see. I was having a conversation with someone out tossing frisbees. They're interested in Jesus and starting to read the Bible. And they told me, you know, there's so much I don't know. It's just intimidating to even try and start. I just find myself overwhelmed and discouraged. And I told them, you you know, thanks for sharing that. Um, Maybe it's helpful to remember that literally everything any of us knows is something at one point we learned. Like there's literally no knowledge in all of humanity that was not learned at some point. And that's true for Bible knowledge too. At some point, you started reading the scriptures or had someone disciple you or sat through a class that helped you to learn what the Bible taught. And it's okay for us to at times not see all that much progress if provided we are doing in faith the things that Jesus instructs us to do. Uh, One day, if we keep on sowing, we'll reap. Uh, One day that progress will be evident. It it might be like that seventh grader to that eighth grader. You don't notice the progress is happening and then all at once, wow, I'm not the same person I used to be. And yet, more often than not, maturity as a Christian is measured in years and decades. So if you find yourself struggling with a pattern of sin and not able to overcome it as quickly as you hoped, or you find yourself struggling with spiritual disciplines or knowing how to pray or, or just what it means to be a Christian through trial, don't be discouraged if the kingdom seed has been planted in your heart. Even though you might not be able to perceive it, it is progressing. And one day... That progress will be obvious on the day when you are glorified by Jesus and he completes the work he started in you. Now, if you're a Christian that's been a Christian for a long time, maybe you're more mature. It's right to notice that more often than not, we have these spiritual growth spurts when we are less mature because progress is easier to achieve when there's lots of it to be had. Uh, But that doesn't mean that you age out of your own growth as a Christian. The kingdom is still progressing in your heart. What are the things that the Lord is refining in your soul? 
What are the ways that you are more submitted to the rule and reign of Jesus with joy in your heart? Maybe you can't see it day to day, but I bet if you look decade by decade, you'd be able to pick out some ways that the kingdom's progressing in your heart. Parents, I think one of the biggest parts of your calling and discipling your kids is this very principle, is being patient, casting kingdom seeds on their heart, knowing that usually they take a long time to germinate. Don't get too excited if you think you see a little sprout of growth. Don't grow too discouraged if it feels like it's just flat earth over their heart. Uh, trust that the Lord's timing, even for your children's faith, is right and good. That the kingdom of God is advancing, it's progressing, and it's powerful. And do you have every reason to expect that the Lord could save your children in his due time? I think another line of application we can take from this is as we look out at the world. Having patience for the work of the kingdom of God when it oftentimes feels like we're not progressing but actually regressing. I just took a collection of headlines this week. I had name brands like Target and uh, an apparel company wholeheartedly promoting an anti-family, anti-the-goodness of God's design for marriage perspective, shoving it down people's throats. You could see that and say, man, it doesn't feel like we're making any progress. You could take the rise of the nuns, not the women who wear black and white shawls, the, the, the people with no religious affiliation, which are undoubtedly a higher percentage of our population here in the United States than they were a few years back. You can see that in the number of young people that grew up in the church that have walked away from their faith. And you can say, it does not feel like the kingdom of God is progressing. It feels like it's regressing. But then you remember the way the kingdom of God advances according to Jesus. Oftentimes, you can't perceive it with your physical eyes. You can't measure it with land mass and with census surveys. Now, it can only be seen with eyes of faith. And only on the day when the rule and reign of Jesus comes to earth and his second coming, and that kingdom becomes a visible kingdom, will all the progress of the kingdom of God be perceptible to us. But until that day, we have to exercise faith see little glimpses of it. And we draw encouragement knowing when Jesus says something that's true, we can bank our souls on it. I think this is one of the reasons why we need to come to church and gather together for our corporate worship. It's a bit like we get together and put on 3D glasses together to watch a spiritual movie. To see the same exact world we're living in week to week, but together see it with a totally different depth than we could on our own. Uh, we see all the things happening around us in the context of a group of people that each are examples of the powerful kingdom at work progressing in each of our hearts. We see the progress of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We see them evangelize the lost around us. And we even have testimonies of people that bend the knee 
and joyful submission to Jesus and his kingdom. And in all of this, we are reminded of the truth. That though it's hard to perceive, the kingdom is progressing in our hearts and in the world. Brothers and sisters, there's so much that you could allow your soul to be discouraged by. And this morning, Jesus wants you to look beyond that feeling of being stuck in your own heart and soul, and that feeling like the world is going the wrong direction, and to look forward to a kingdom that is coming and has already come, and the power of King Jesus amongst us. Last week, Tim Keller ended his earthly course running the race. Uh, so much of my faith has been encouraged by Tim Keller. Didn't agree with everything he wrote, but was always challenged and provoked to thinking. In many ways, he shaped the way I think about preaching the gospel and doing ministry. One of the things I loved about Keller is the way he had this vision, both toward the need for us to see the kingdom and work toward the kingdom advancing in this world, but ultimately to looking beyond it to the kingdom that's coming. There was this quote of his going around on social media. There will be a city. There is going to be a just society. Beauty will be there. Poverty and war will be gone. And here's the key part. And we are not the saviors. Brothers and sisters, the powerful kingdom is progressing in your heart and in the world, not because of what we do, but because of what he is doing. And that's reason to be encouraged no matter what's happening. Would you pray with me? Jesus, you have promised that you will build your church. So in faith, we pray that your Kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that you would help us, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would be your agents of compassion to this world. We pray you would also keep our souls from that ditch of discouragement when it doesn't feel like we are making progress or it even feels like the world is regressing instead of progressing. Would you give us eyes of faith to see what you are doing, Jesus, and to give you all the glory. All glory be to you, Christ, our King. All glory be to Christ. His rule and reign will ever sing. All glory be to Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.